understanding China has become more difficult than ever, yet also more important than ever. Whether the U.S. and China are rivals, partners, or a mix of both, effective policy will only be as good as the information on which it is based. My name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm the Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I also have had the privilege of being one of the few American scholars who has traveled back and forth between Washington and Beijing in recent years. I'm a firm believer that field research, direct observation, talking, and listening to Chinese perspectives must be a part of our toolkit to understand the People's Republic of China. So join me as I speak with Chinese leaders from business, government, and academia, and foreigners who have spent many years living and working in China. What makes China tick? Where is the country going? What connects us? And what divides us? We'll dive into all of that and more on this podcast. Welcome to China Field Notes. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this new edition of China Field Notes. This is Scott Kennedy, and I am delighted to be joined today by Li Shuo, who is the director of the China Climate Hub at the Asia Society Policy Institute. I'm going to introduce Li Shuo more in a minute, but I'm also joined today by my trustee chair colleague Alaria Mazako, who heads our program's work on clean tech and climate change policy. She is the real expert on these issues in our program, and I just did not think it made any sense for me to host a program on climate and the environment without her. So, Alaria, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. I'm very excited. Well, terrific. Well, it's great to team up with you for this conversation with Li Shuo, who I mentioned at the top works with Aspie's China Climate Hub. And for many years, he has focused on analyzing China's environmental and energy policies and supporting the international community's engagement with China on its climate agenda. Prior to joining Asia Society, Li Shuo worked at For Greenpeace in Beijing, where he directed policy work on China's domestic environmental challenges. He's also, for more than a decade, has experience involved with the UN's environmental negotiations on climate change, biodiversity, plastic pollution, and ozone. And he just finished attending and participating in COP28 in Dubai, where after a very contentious couple of weeks, they reached a compromise deal on transitioning away from fossil fuels. So there is a lot to talk about, Li Shuo. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much, Scott and Ilaria. Happy to be here, and thanks for your invitation. Of course. Well, we're going to tag team this, so we're going to go back and forth and ask questions. This is not like a dissertation defense or anything like that. This is meant to be a friendly conversation, and so we're going to take turns in asking questions. And really, I know that we're going to learn a lot today. But let's start at the beginning. Just about yourself, how did you become interested in the environment and climate change policy? Having traveled to China for a few decades, we've watched China's environment, air, water, land, and challenges that they face. We've been there through the airpocalypse of the early 2010s. Is that what got you interested in the environment or something else? And do you find that you are typical of most Chinese or very different from average Chinese in your views about the environment. Sure, Scott. I, I think that's a good starting point. I was a international relations political science major in college. 
And that's a subject that I have been very interested in since a young age. So that was kind of my major in college. I also uh, happen to focus quite a lot in my education on just U.S.-China relationship. So that's kind of my educational and kind of personal interest. I sort of stumbled into environmental and climate issues because when I graduated, I graduated in, uh, in the late 2000s, I was trying to find a job that has some aspect of international relations that can utilize my education background. And around that time, Greenpeace was looking for someone to cover some of the international environmental treaty negotiations. And I thought that's, um, that's a dream job. That could be a dream job for me because what they do is to send you to the front lines of many of the intergovernmental, environmental, or climate negotiations. So that's how I stumbled into this subject. In retrospect, I feel quite lucky because I started my career in the early 2010s. That also happened to be the time when China's domestic environmental momentum was picking up. In the early 2010s, we saw tremendous environmental challenges in China, in particular air pollution. And we happened to work on that issue a lot when I was at Greenpeace. At the same time, at the international level, countries just suffered from the major failure in Copenhagen at the UN Climate Summit there. And they're trying to pick up the pieces and to rebuild, reconstruct the future international regime. That was the process in the run-up to the 2015 Paris climate talk. So that's how I, when I started. And in retrospect, I, I sort of caught the very good moment. And so I've been working on this issue over the last 13 years and half done. I think Dubai is my 13th cop now. Wow. Wow. Well, yes, you certainly did arrive at the right moment when you're finishing your degree, given where China was. So fortuitous for those of us who care about the environment, and you played a pivotal role. Alaria, over to you. Yeah, actually, building on that, China is obviously the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, but it's also a leader in the deployment of renewable energy and electric vehicles. So how do you think this tension has shaped China's international position in climate diplomacy, since you are such an expert? Sure. I think China has been following very much an all-of-the-above approach, right? In many of the developed and Western countries, you tend to see their fossil fuel and their renewable energy development offsetting each other. Namely, the more renewable energy you embrace, the more you phase out or phase down fossil fuel. In China, this is not exactly the dynamic we have seen over the last more than a decade, very rapid growth not only on renewable energy, wind and solar in particular, but also uh, still rapid growth when it comes to coal-fired power plant construction and coal consumption. And so this is the complex situation when it comes to China's energy and climate choices. It is indeed leading when it comes to the deployment of clean technology. It is at the same time still relying heavily on fossil fuel, in particular coal. And this also, I think, is constraining China's international environmental leadership. The reliance on coal at the international level is indeed a major concern of many climate vulnerable countries. And in fact, at this COP in Dubai, the fossil fuel reliance and the growing coal consumption in different parts of the world has been an important topic on which we have seen some very heated exchanges over the last two weeks. Yeah. Hey, let me ask a question about China's interest in 
the environment and climate, because you mentioned this tension or the differences and challenges. And to one extent, I wonder, is China's mixed approach the result of interest group tensions in China between energy intensive industries competing against energy less intensive industries or different regions or different bureaucracies? Or is this about the ideological position of China's top leaders and this is the vision that they want to implement? So trying to get our arms around why has China taken this approach. You studied political science, so you should be able to be sensitive to like these different kinds of arguments about why China has taken the approach it has, whether it's about different internal fissures, bureaucratic interest groups, or the views of the, of the top leadership. Where do you come down on that? Well, I think the all of above approach is very much a result of this strong development mindset that China's economy and its political system has been following over the last few decades. And in that sense, China is indeed still a developing country in the sense that the the country still prioritizes economic growth and associated visit to ensure that there could be enough energy supply. And in this this regard, both coal power plants, but also uh, clean technologies such as wind and solar are sent as a support to the country's overall economic growth. So I think the all of the above approach is very much a direct outcome of China's strong development mindset over the last three decades since its reform and opening up. The number one priority of both the Chinese society but its policymakers has been to ensure strong economic growth. And to do that, policymakers need to ensure that there is enough energy supply. So in this regard, both high-carbon coal power and also clean tech such as wind and solar are seen as important sources of energy to support China's growth. And I think this sentiment actually in most recent years has been cemented by the growing desire to ensure security, not just economic security, but energy security. And in turn, has strengthened this all-of-the-above approach Both wind and solar and also coal are sent as the answer to make sure China can achieve complete self-reliance when it comes to energy consumption. Mm. Laria? Yeah, changing gears a little bit. Xi Jinhua is retiring. He's been shaping China's climate policy for decades. How do you evaluate his role and what comes next? Well, I think he is probably the best case in point for individual leadership and the role of key individuals in international diplomacy. I think in many ways, his commitment, his long experience, and extensive engagement over the years with the rest of the global community, but in particular with some of his American counterparts over the years, really highlights the role of how individuals can transcend national politics and national differences. So indeed, this COP is a very special COP for Xi Jinhua, China's climate envoy. Just two hours before our podcast, there was a joint U.S.-China press conference where Xi and his American counterpart, John Kerry, spoke together. And it was sort of a goodbye moment for Xi, who has participated, I think, about 15 COPs over the last almost two decades. And it was also a very moving moment. We saw sort of a more personal aspect of this climate veteran. 
he told the conference that just a couple of days ago, he introduced his eight years old grandson to John Kerry, who just turned 80 years old yesterday, and also highlighted the very important role young generation can play when it comes to climate change and climate action. Indeed, I mean, this is an issue that uh, won't be solved by just one or maybe even two generations. It requires persistent efforts of the future generations. I want to talk about where we go from here before we end this discussion. But first, since you have been in Dubai at COP28 for the past few weeks, and you need some sleep at some point because you've been working so hard, I want to first tackle the question about what's happened in China. As you mentioned, in 2010 at Copenhagen, things didn't work out as planned. I remember President Obama being confronted by a Chinese foreign ministry official and having an argument, folks wanting to know where was Wen Jiabao and that things didn't turn out well at all. Here we are 13 years later. Is China's role in these meetings, how much it's willing to lean forward, changed? You mentioned Xie Jianhua, but I think there's still the impression amongst the policy community in Washington and other capitals that China's all of the above strategy, as you described, basically puts big breaks on the ability to reach very important agreements that would be path-breaking. How has China shifted over this time, and, and what what is their role now? Well, China still plays, of course, an outside role in this international climate talks. Its reliance on coal has been the key focus at this conference. And in fact, more broadly, the issue of fossil fuel consumption is really the essential topic at COP28. I think just over the years, China has, as part of the international climate forces, evolved its climate position by embracing, for example, stronger climate targets. But at the same time, its pace for energy transformation still seems to be too slow by global standard, and in particular in light of the climate urgency. So I think China's performance over the last decade or so has been largely a mixed bag. Its performance also tends to ebb and flow based its key relationship with the rest of the world, in particular, the U.S.-China bilateral relationship, but also the EU-China relationship. I think an important feature of COP28 is, of course, the two biggest emitters in the world, the U.S. and China, reached an agreement in sunny lands just a few weeks before the COP, formulated some level of alignment. And I think that agreement, as what we have seen over the last two weeks, helped to stabilize the politics at the UN. It also helped calm down the tensions here. Having that said, at this COP, I think many people also start to realize the limitation of the G2 climate agreement. 10 years ago, when we were in the run-up to the critical 2015 climate summit in Paris, the U.S.-China agreements reached there. Many of the provisions were cut and directly pasted into the Paris Agreement. You cannot have a more evident way to lead the rest of the world than that. But at this COP, what we've seen is, indeed, there was this U.S.-China agreement, but it tend to play a much more limited role in guiding the rest of the world. 
This is largely the result of the contentious bilateral relationship between the two countries. I would also argue this is also perhaps a result of the involvement of China over the years. China is definitely not the same country as it was 10 years ago. The country will peak and decline its emissions within this decade. So that's, that's a very important development for the country. And as a result of that, I think one interesting thing about COP28 is just a few weeks before this COP, the U.S. and China reached a climate agreement in sunny lands ahead of President Xi Jinping and Biden's San Francisco summit. This bilateral climate agreement played a role to stabilize the politics and calm down the tension here in Dubai. But at the same time, I think it's very important for us to realize that the G2 climate agreement reached in recent years are very different compared to what the two countries were able to do 10 years ago. Back then, the two countries, when they reached the series of uh, climate agreements, many of the key provisions in these bilateral agreements were directly cut and pasted into the multilateral deal, including the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. We certainly see much less fingerprint of these two countries in the final deal reached here in Dubai. I think part of the reason is the contentious bilateral relationship in recent years, limiting what the two climate envoys can still agree with each other. But I think an underappreciated aspect is also how China as a country, as an emitter, has evolved over the last decade. The country will peak and decline its emissions and its overall energy consumption within this decade. And this new situation was largely inconceivable 10 years ago. And the result of this is the G2 agreement now may seem to be the low bar in terms of ambition for the U.S., but is no longer the low bar for the rest of the developing world. So to get many of those countries, and many of them are increasingly big energy consumers, such as India, or producers such as Saudi Arabia, to get them on board, the G2 agreement could only play a limited role compared to 10 years ago. Laria, over to you. Well, following up on that, so do you think there's still a role for climate cooperation between the U.S. and China? Ilaria, I think cooperation is an important aspect in the U.S.-China climate relationship. And we should recognize that cooperation has helped both countries over the last years, in particular the Chinese side, to garner more political will to move on the climate agenda. But I think going forward, and also in light of the challenging bilateral relationship, what we need to preserve the most is a climate hotline between the two countries. In other words, at least at the governmental level, the two countries need to be able to talk to each other, to maintain their engagement. And engagement, in my mind, does not necessarily mean the two countries have to cooperate in a specific area. But just the fact that they can sit together and communicate their respective views and expectations to the other side. I think that is a very important aspect. It is oftentimes an underappreciated aspect, but it is a necessary condition 
if not a sufficient one, for the two countries to make climate progress and also to help the rest of the world to stay on course with the climate agenda. Looking ahead to 2024, one of the biggest issues in U.S.-China relations is going to come around autos and transportation. There is a big debate between two goals that need to be achieved. One is about de-risking, reducing reliance on China for critical minerals, other parts of the supply chain, concern about Chinese industrial policy and fairness, all of that on the one side, and the need to promote an energy transition in the United States. So the first would say, find alternative sources for critical minerals and their processing, develop alternative sources for batteries, develop American electric vehicles and reduce any chance that China would swamp the U.S. market with its EVs. The alternative policy approach would say, you know, yes, China's economic governance approach with a lot of industrial policy is unfair, but it would help support a transition faster than would otherwise be the case. And the U.S. and others should just simply accept collaborating with this kind of China because of the potential positive environmental benefits. Where do you come down on that debate? Well, Scott, I won't pretend that I have the silver bullet, but I think what you highlighted uh, is very much a reflection of how the global climate agenda has been mainstreamed over the years to the extent that it now really interacts in a meaningful way and substantive way with different countries' trade, economic, and industrial policies. And increasingly, in many countries, and I would say as a result of the geopolitical shifts that we're seeing across the world, the need for decarbonization and the industrial and trade policies of different countries tend to conflict with each other. So this is also indeed a very important topic that the COP here in Dubai is trying to tackle. We can certainly not rely on one COP to provide us all the answer, but I think this question has very much been highlighted. How to balance different pursuits or, or interests across the trade, economic, and climate agenda? I don't think the global community has figured out all the answer, but one thing that is clear to me is this competing priority will be with us and will be part of the international climate forces for the foreseeable future. That's very helpful. It suggests that 2024, we're still going to see some significant tensions, even though there's been some progress. Elari, I'm going to let you have the last question. I think in 2024, what can we expect from China in terms of its domestic policy on climate? We've seen sort of a perhaps less ambitious moves, especially as the economy slowed down. Do you think that's going to be the trend moving forward, or do we f- you think we can expect some more ambition? Sure, Ilaria. In general, we have been suffering low domestic climate momentum. The economic slowdown, the desire to ensure energy security, and China's turbulent bilateral relationship with many key countries in the world, I, I think those are all headwind for China's climate agenda. I think a key question for 2024 is whether we could hit the turning point 
when it comes to our climate momentum. And in particular, and this is probably the most concerning aspect of China's climate and energy policy, the country is still building a lot of coal-fired power plants. And there is no sign that a decisive departure will happen any time in the near future for China to move away from coal, or to transition away from coal, as what we just decided here in Dubai. So I think China's decision on coal in 2024 will be a very important issue for us to keep an eye on. What kind of new record will the country set when it comes to clean technology deployment? Wind, solar, electric vehicle, battery storage. I think that's probably the more positive and hopeful aspect of China's climate story in 2024. Lastly, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, we are also expecting a, a new batch of China's climate decision makers and diplomats. How will they interact with the rest of the world, in particular their American counterparts? Will the momentum and alignment generated by the Sunny Lands Climate Agreement be implemented in the next few months? And the visions enshrined in that agreement be really fulfilled? I think that's probably the third most important aspect for us to keep an eye on in the new year. Well, Li Shuo, this has been a fascinating conversation. We appreciate you joining us after a very long several weeks of discussions in Dubai. At the end of a COP, we should all be feeling hopeful. And the negotiations did generate an agreement to try and transition away from fossil fuels. On the other hand, our conversation has also pointed out the realism that we need to have about what our expectations can be going forward. Your emphasis on China's all of the above strategy points to the change that has taken place in China over the last couple decades, but it also suggests that there's still more that needs to be done because successful addressing of climate change means eventually an abandonment of all of the above strategy in a direction toward more renewable fuels and approaches to different industries. So that's not just a problem and challenge China faces. It's certainly one that the US and the rest of the world faces. And you've given us a sense of what that landscape looks like now and the challenges for next year. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, both. Thank you. Thanks for listening to China Field Notes. Stay up to date with our latest releases by following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to great content. Until next time.